0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, February 9th, 2020, we continue our series titled Live Different, The Sermon on the Mount. Today's sermon, The Heart of the Matter, Desire, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Matthew chapter five, verses 27 through 32. Enjoy. Today's subject, of course, is at the heart of the matter is desire. And of course, desire is something that each and every one of us is in fact inflicted with. This is part of God's curse. It is part of the handing us over to our own desire. So it's oftentimes that we say or do or act in certain ways that is uh, sin. And it is because of this desire. Romans 1.24, Paul said, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. To lust or to desire. So, but today we're going to look at the Word of God and we're going to determine that the word lust or lustful intent is probably not 100% adequate for our, our walk away understanding of what it actually says. I know that for myself, I have a tendency to allow things come out of my mouth that are always just from the desire, right? From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I was thinking, um, you know, we spend a lot of time laying out these sermons. We're literally a year ahead of where we're going to be uh, when we're talking in our pulpit meetings. Uh, and then we're also talking two and three weeks out as we come to them. And I appreciate God the irony as well as God's incredible comedic genius that we would be talking about lust and divorce on the week of Valentine's Day. <laughs> in fact, it reminded me of some years back I was... Um, At the grocery store, it was coming upon Valentine's Day, and I'm staring at flowers and just trying to figure out what flowers am I supposed to get? Does this really present my love for my wife And, and all those things? And there was a guy standing next to me who was just as aimless and clueless as me, staring at flowers, trying to figure out what are we supposed to buy? How much? How many? and all those different things. And I felt like I was on um, one of those reality shows where there was a hidden camera, if you're old enough, like Candid Camera, right? Where someone is trying to set me up because an old joke is rolling out before my eyes. And I'm like, is this possible? Like, this is so awesome, right? This is so great. And the guy next to me, he's, you know, he keeps making eye contact with me, he keeps looking at the flowers. And then he says the magical words. He says, he says, man, it's sure a shame to spend this kind of money on something that's gonna die. I couldn't help myself. I said, yeah, and you gotta buy her flowers too. He didn't appreciate that. I felt it was great. I'm sorry, wife. But we understand that it is desire that ultimately leads to our demise because it is from this temptation in this gestational period of de- temptation that sin is conceived and from sin comes death. We know the stats are in one out of every one dies and every single person will die as a result of their sinful natures. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. But Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is going to give us great warning. He's going to touch on something that I have to be honest with you, presents to me a level of fear and trembling as we go through this word because who he's talking to is every man and woman. It's our easy intent to walk away from this message and think that he's only talking to men. Ladies, he's talking to you as well. But as we go through this message, I just want to read it to you. It's Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. It says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery. "'But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman "'with lustful intent has already committed adultery "'with her in his heart. "'If your right eye causes you to sin, "'tear it out and throw it away. "'For it is better that you lose one of your members "'than your whole body be thrown into hell.'" And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He segues to divorce and he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Desire plays such a significant part in this message. I want to focus at first on the term lustful intent when he says that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Our point one is earnestly desired, earnestly desired. The issue here is more than just simple desire. There's actually an action that is taking place. It's important that we understand that the Greek word that's used here is epithumio. And epithumio has a distinct meaning. It's also important to understand that it's a verb, it's not a noun. So it's calling to the action of what's taking place. When we start to understand what epithumio means, I can't stress this enough, is that you must, to qualify within this category of sin, there has to be great desire. There has to be a focused passion. And it has to be on purpose. There's an intent behind it. It's what separates it from the idea or the concept of mere lust. Again, it's not a passing glance or a fancy for a person, It's not even a double take that you would take at an attractive person as they walk by. When we look at it, we start to understand that the word epithumio actually means covet. We see Paul use it in Romans 7, verse 7. He says, then what do we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet sin. If the law had said not to covet, you shall not covet. We think about that for a minute. If the word lustful intent is actually the word covet, it starts to take on a slightly different meaning. In Romans 13, 9, Paul uses it there when he quotes the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. In each of these verses, he's using the exact same Greek word of epithumio. And so he's telling us that the issue here is much deeper than just a mere glancing of lust or a mere desire. In fact, when Paul quotes the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, he's using that exact same word. He's telling us that that the seventh, he says the seventh commandment is what banned adultery. And the 10th commandment banned the thing that leads to adultery. Jesus reminded them that murder is wrong, right? Earlier in the, in the verses, and Thomas touched upon this last week, and then he banned the thing that leads to murder, which was anger. Start to notice the symmetry there. God is in fact picking the obvious, thou shalt not commit adultery. And what he's by doing by this is he's banning the very thing that leads to adultery, which in this case is referred to as lustful intent or coveting. In fact, the word covet in the 10th commandment is the exact same word. And I don't know why in our English Standard Version it uses the word lust, and I don't make sure that we understand that it's not necessarily in our culture today a strong enough word. So I want to make sure that the word, you understand it of what he's saying. Because if I were to slightly change the ESV version, modify Matthew five twenty-seven through 28, it would read something like this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who gazes intently at a woman in order to covet her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, this makes a significant difference. It changes the understanding from don't look at a woman to don't covet a woman. And so we have to understand, what does it mean to covet? It's not a word that we use every day. It's a word we've probably all heard, but not a word that is in our typical conversations. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, um, starting in verse 13 through through 17, tells us of Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9. 6 is you shall not murder which we kind of covered last week in anger. Um, Seven is you shall not commit adultery, what we're talking about today. Eighth commandment is you shall not steal. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, at the heart of this issue is understanding that desire sometimes wants something that doesn't belong to it. And this is where the problem lays. In fact, only one of the Ten Commandments legislates thought. And it's the Tenth Commandment of thou shalt not covet. Commandments one through nine deal primarily with behavior. In fact, the 613 laws of the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, really don't deal with thought They deal primarily with behavior. So, why does the Ten Commandments deal with thought? Because it's coveting that leads to evil. It is certainly coveting that leads to violating the commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9. And the question is, is why? It's because thieves covet their neighbor's property, they covet their car, their home, maybe even their wife. Some come to the conclusion that if I murder the husband, I might have a chance to have his wife drive his car or live in his house. This is essentially our contemporary modern day form of divorce. It ultimately leads to the bearing of false witness, commandment number nine, where we lie to cover up what we've done with our reasoning for where we're at right now. You see, this covet is much more than mere want or simple desire. It requires two components, the want or the desire to the point of, number one, seeking to take away and possess something that, number two, belongs to another person. You see, seeking to own does not mean envy, just as in the case of your neighbor's wife does not mean lusting after. I want to be clear, I'm not trying to place women into the position of being property But I will stand firm on the fact that my wife is my wife. The issue is not ownership. The issue is that which God has brought together. Let no man separate. But neither envy or lusting is permitted within God's word. Uncontrolled envy and lust can certainly lead to bad things. And they can both psychologically and emotionally be destructive. But there's a reason why it's not in the Ten Commandments. I've often wondered, why doesn't it just simply say, Thou shalt not lust, thou shalt not envy? Because neither envy or lust is the same as coveting. Coveting is the desire that each of us leads ourselves down the path to sin. We can't go through social media without comparing ourselves to somebody else. We're coveting. When we see that someone has a nice house and we think ours should be as nice, we are coveting. Whether it's their car or whether it's their spouse. Men are easy human beings because they lust with their eyes. Women sometimes covet a better life and an emotional attachment somewhere else. Because coveting is what leads to stealing and adultery and sometimes even murder. We simply cannot allow ourselves to covet what belongs to our neighbor. We have to hold those things that belong to them as sacred. Because if we take anything that belongs to another, there is only an evil answer. You see, Christ's exposition of the seventh commandment in verses 27 through 30 indicates how the biblical teaching on adultery goes contrary to what much of our society wants to tell us about human sexuality. Most people, at least in our culture, are unlikely to have consummated or taken the action towards an extramarital affair. But in demonstrating the seventh commandment, there was given also this prohibition of coveting or lustful intent. Jesus is not somehow saying that unconsummated lustful intent is sinful to the same degree as an actual extramarital affair, although both sins merit specific consequence. The latter, the extramarital affair, is more blatant violation of the statute against adultery, and it has greater consequences that come in the form of divorce, or the loss of reputation, or the loss of being a trustworthy person. Nevertheless, all extramarital affairs start in the heart with covetous desires that are ultimately nurtured and indulged instead of fought through repentance and resistance." James 1, 12 through 15, Thomas touched on it last week, is this gestational period where temptation becomes conceived in sin and sin leads to death. There's also a lot of human history and experience that we may rightly infer that lust is the first step towards sexual sin. And it falls under the scope of transgressions that are forbidden by the seventh commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery. And of course, we actually know what lust is if we are to resist it. Lust is not sexual desire in and of itself. For sexual desire is part of God's creation, and the consummation of it is entirely lawful within marriage. Genesis 2, 23-24 describes, in fact, God's creative order of marriage. And moreover, we also can't say that lust is not just a mere recognition of physical attractiveness. The Lord made us recognize beauty, and Scripture itself speaks without breaking God's law of the beauty, of, beauty and handsomeness of some people. Because it describes in Genesis 29:17 or 1 Samuel 16:12 or 1 Samuel 25:3, it talks about the beauty and the and the handsomeness of people. But Jesus makes some very serious statements here, and he speaks in hyperbole. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It presents the opportunity for fleeing temptation. If your eyesight is causing you to stumble, then you must flee it. If your touch is causing you to stumble, then you must flee it. You have to take action. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, which, by the way, are fruit of the Spirit, Right along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Or Genesis 4, verse 7. Pastor Ed talked on this when we were in the book of Genesis. It says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. The command of God is that there is going to be sin that crouches at your door, and the command of God is that you must master it. There's so many things in this world, in this society, in this culture today that are lures, that are enticing you away from the love of Christ where we're embracing them and we're engaging in the temptation rather than fleeing the temptation. I'll ask the obvious question. Is pornography sin? Yes. Because those people do not belong to you and you are coveting that which is not yours. You're using your fantasical thoughts to lead you down a path that is showing you that you're wanting something that is not yours. And we enter into that coveting. People say that it's not that big a deal. After all, porn doesn't hurt anybody. Let me give you some stats on our current porn inside the United States. 28,258 people this second are tuned into pornography. Every second, in fact. 28,258. They spend $3,075 every second in pornography. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. 43% of teens believe porn is bad for a society, which means that more than 50% believe it's okay. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling with it. 51% of male students and 32% of female students viewed porn before their teenage years. The first exposure to pornography among young men is 12 years old on average. 71% of teens hide online behaviors from their parents. And in 2016, there was a study showing that 45.3 adolescent males admitted that they were suffering from problems of erectile dysfunction. 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover over the Internet. 56% involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. This isn't about mastery over this desire, not the mastery over porn. It's the mastery over your covetous heart. The appetite for which drives you to those positions. In counseling, we work on the three A's. We work on access, accountability, and appetite. In fact, if you can modify your accessibility and have someone that's going to hold you accountable, if this is a stumbling block for you, it will greatly reduce the appetite. One young man that I've been counseling for some time who is addicted to pornography, as he would say, we simply put in, he came to me and said, it doesn't hurt anybody. And I remember saying to him, and he was shocked by this, because I said, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone, tonight when you get home, what what say you to ask, because he still is at home with his parents, right? I said, what what if maybe you were to invite your mom to come in and watch a little porn with you? (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah, that's wrong. Okay, no, I'm not going to. So through Covenant Eyes, which is an online app that you can get, you can, in fact, assign accountability. In this particular young man's case, he assigned that accountability to his mom, So every electronic device he has, if he looks for porn, if he watches porn, it immediately sends a notification to his mother that he is, in fact, watching or viewing pornography. I can tell you, for four months, he's been porn-free. Because he brought on accountability, it took away his accessibility. And what he'll tell you today is his appetite for porn is virtually gone. You can reverse the effects of these things. But we see in Scripture, not necessarily what we would call pornography today, but we see King David. King David on his balcony looking down at the home sees a naked Bathsheba bathing in her own yard in the privacy of her own yard. And rather than fleeing the temptation, he stands and he lures, leers at her. And then he adds intent behind this, this leer at her and he sends his men to go get her. The men bring him back and then he exercises intent where he engages in an illicit sexual relationship with another man's wife. When she becomes pregnant, he fears in his idol of reputation that he has offended people. And rather than admit to his error, he goes on and he hides it further. He conspires different ways to try and get out of this and ultimately leads to the murder of Uriah." But see, 15 months later, 15 months after this sin, David encountered something incredible, a broken and a contrite heart. You see, Psalm 51, David comes to the realization, I have sinned against you and you only have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's begging God, deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Then David says these words, the sacrifices of God, of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. If you ever get a chance, there's a book, it's actually about 139 pages. It's called The Acceptable Sacrifice. It's written by John Bunyan, who also wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you're looking for familiarity. But it's 139 pages with no chapter breaks and a singular thought on Psalm 51 and the brokenness and the contrition that David experienced 15 months after. Because up until that point, what David was experiencing is what most of us experience. He was experiencing autrition. And autrition is just, I'm sorry that I got caught. Whereas contrition is coming to the realization that I'm shattered under the eyes of a holy God. And I've fallen to my knees and I've said, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. David's not forgetting that he sinned against Bathsheba or that he murdered Uriah. He's recognizing that both these people are created in the image of God and therefore I have sinned against their creator. You keep that in mind the next time you view pornography, that that person is created in the image of God, that they are in fact a person who needs the Savior as much as you. When we look at the application of this lustful intent, we as a church should be doing all that we can to prevent a climate and in our homes, in our church, that make adultery easy to commit and easy to hide. We must also regularly return to the Bible's teaching on sexuality so that we can resist the lies about lust and about sex that our culture loves to tell us about every single day. You can't go through a grocery line without a temptation. You can't go and watch television without a temptation. Our world is a Super Bowl halftime show. And I hear people, I heard people say to me all week long, and I haven't watched the Super Bowl in 20 plus years, so I don't really care. But at the same time, I'm reading these articles about what took place in this halftime show. And this person says to me, it's a shame that the Super Bowl would show such filth knowing the children are watching. I said, whoa, time out. It's a shame that the Super Bowl would show such filth, period. The issue has nothing to do with whether it's your children or whether it's a grown man. The issue is whether you looked at that and coveted in your heart. Because on that day, on that moment, when you turned to coveting and desired something that wasn't yours, you took action, you made a verb become reality, and at that moment, you committed adultery. You see, the coveting of women is a lured temptation of your desire. That's the desire that's crouching at your door. It's not Satan's desire, it's yours. He's using your desires to set the trap, and it is sexual immorality to do such covetous acts. And ultimately, the possibility is that divorce will ensue. Continual coveting will lead to a hardened heart. And there will come a point that there is no return. For some of you men in your addiction to pornography, you're setting up a case of adultery that could lead you down the path of divorce. And if you sit there and say, well, she has to do what she has to do, let me tell it to you this way so you get it. Another man's going to raise your kids. You must repent. Repent you must be reconciled to God so that you can be restored to the wife of your youth. It leads us to our point two, which is a hardened heart. And that hardened heart is divorce. It's sexual immorality. Jesus says it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Keep in mind that divorce in the biblical times wasn't the separating of assets or the shared custody of children. It wasn't anything to do with the separation. It has everything to do with the eligibility for remarriage. The certificate acted as a proof that this person is eligible for remarriage. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that God wants not only right actions, but also a pure heart. And refraining from murder and adultery does not exhaust those particular commandments of Exodus 20. Because Exodus 20 also forbids lust and unjust anger. You see, this is in line with the Old Testament, which says that the law must be followed in heart and in deed. Deuteronomy 6 or Psalm 37. Jesus' corrections of the Pharisaic traditions are not an exposition of the law that covers every single possible situation. For example, Christ says everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But he does not mean that anger is always evil as he himself will get angry without sinning. Ungodly anger is what the injunction against murder forbids. Because we can rarely be righteously angry and yet not sin. Ephesians 4.26 warns us of that. This point is what helps us understand today's passage. Jesus does not give every possible ground for divorce when he allows it for sexual immorality. Because desertion by an unbelieving spouse also makes divorce permissible. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16 tells us of that. But moreover, the Greek word here for sexual immorality in today's passage is the word pornea. It is ultimately where we do get the word pornography. But what it means is all forms of sexual misconduct, implying that some sexual sins, beside extramarital affairs, can in fact be legitimate for divorce. Jesus is not allowing divorce for any instance or any reason whatsoever of lust or sexual indiscretion. Otherwise, every lewd thought is just cause for divorce. Since no sinner has been fully pure in this area, every marriage would then be dissolvable. And this clearly violates the Lord's high view of, of the holy matrimony that he delivers in, later in Matthew 19. You see, in Matthew 19, he's going to deal with the Pharisees on this subject. They came to him, and they started testing him, and they said, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because the Pharisees were, in fact, divorcing their wives for burnt bread. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. But he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, it was not so. You need to understand that divorce is not God's goal. In fact, he hates divorce. He doesn't want you to divorce. He wants you to reconcile to him and be restored to your wife. And he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, pornea, and marries another, commits adultery. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is where they're taking this from. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over it uh, for the sake of time, but I encourage you to go back and read it so that you understand what Moses was talking about in the relationship of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But one of the purposes of the Mosaic Law addressing divorce was to control the utter chaos that was occurring at the time because men were leaving and abandoning or removing their wives from the home for any and every reason they could find. They were also demanding their absolute right to do this. Sinclair Ferguson, a a contemporary theologian, says, a law that was clearly intended to safeguard women in Israel was turned into an escape clause for self-indulgent men. As with other complicated problems in the Christian life, we go to our pastors and our elders to see if the particular form of pornea in your household is legal grounds for divorce. God gives us the church to help us work through complex issues. Acts 15, 1 through 35, if you're looking for that scripture on that. But each marriage is, of course, different. And choosing the right course of action can be extremely difficult. But wise church leaders are to apply scripture properly and give sound direction. Divorce is often seen as an easier solution than working through marital problems and is appealing to our fallen nature. We have to recognize this lest we adopt the world's practicing and sanctioning of divorces for reasons other than those that God has given. John Calvin reminds us, he says, the bond of marriage is too sacred to be dissolved at the will of humanity, or rather the licentious pleasure of men. Jesus is not giving us a license to commit divorce or a license to commit adultery. He's telling us to cling to the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's many issues that can drive spouses to despair and to contemplate an unbiblical divorce. And that is why we must seek help for our marital troubles when those marital troubles begin. I have to say, so many of you come to me or to some of the other elders and pastors, and you've waited so long that we have crossed over into the hardened heart category. And the likelihood of getting reconciliation or repentance becomes slim and none. I want to encourage you, I'm putting up here the Highlands website, that if you are currently encountering a marriage or a difficulty in life that involves the idea of sexual immorality or any problems within your marriage whatsoever, the church is here for you. Book an appointment, come in and see a pastor, meet with me, talk through it, understand what God's Word specifically teaches on these subjects, and pray and pray and pray for reconciliation and restoration and healing to your marriages that brings glory to God, not just immediately pull the trigger on that which he hates. You see, if you know of another couple who's having problems, I want you to encourage them to seek biblical counseling as well. This week is going to be an excellent and active discussion, probably in your small groups, with this subject. I want you to really dig into the questions to help each other grow. It's going to require a little bit of truth and transparency, not necessarily residing, uh, speaking of your, of your heinous crimes, but certainly looking at the motivation to why we do the things we do. One of the preventative measures is Psalm 119, 9 through 11. And the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. For I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You must be dedicated to the apostle's teaching, to the speaking of his word to fill your life with the word and the sufficiency of his word in your life so that you can flee the temptation of your desire. Matthew 5.20, we've said it multiple times, warns us and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, you will never enter the kingdom of God. If you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps with this, you're going to fail. If you're trying to take this temptation head on because you're trying to conquer the the subject rather than the heart of what's going on, you're going to fail. You see, Jesus is our only hope. It is his righteousness that we must depend upon. It's not my works, nor is it the people around me. So often we're looking for our spouse to be the one to help us through this whole thing. Let me put our spouses in context. Paul David Tripp, um, a biblical counselor, says this. He says, I am never going to have paradise in my marriage. Paradise is that to come. I'm, I'm never married to a perfect person, for that person will never be my Messiah. The person I am married to has no capacity whatsoever to change my heart, That person I am married to has no capacity whatsoever to bring satisfaction and contentment to my heart. They have no ability whatsoever to deliver me from my sin. They have no ability to do any of that. Only Christ can. Only his word can bring you to that place of enjoying life and life abundantly in the fruit of his spirit, not the fruit of you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that these nine characteristics of one fruit comes from the Holy Spirit. And if you will humble yourself and turn to Christ, he will give you rest. And when your soul finds rest, peace enters in. And you find joy in worshiping and serving the Lord. I beg of you, always look to where he is working. For the test and the trial that you're going through comes from a good God. But the temptations that you're going through come from your desire. And you must master it. You need to call upon the Lord. Even as we prepare to sing, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. May we turn to him. Our Father and our God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would, (coughs) that you, Lord, would give us rest, that we would stop trying to fix our lives and fix our situations, but that we would turn to you and your grace and that we would truly grow in your grace and the knowledge of your son through your word. It is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, I know if you are here for the first time, I have to be honest with you that we don't talk like this every Sunday. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I will not give an apology for God's word. For this is the thing that puts us right with God. When we resist the temptation and the urges to seek our desires, but that we surrender ourselves under the eyes of God. My favorite Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. You must gain mastery over your desires. There's not a better spouse on the other side of the fence. You're with the person that God has you with and you need to stay there. But you need to get the help and biblical help to find reconciliation to God and restoration to each other. May we live our lives under the eyes of God to his glory. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you all next week.